For 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering and pastors have been saying to believers, He is risen. And believers have been responding, He is risen indeed. I would like to do that this morning. Are you ready? We've got a a full house, so I know you're not going to leave me hanging. Let's do it. He is risen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Jesus obviously lived a phenomenal life. About 2,000 years ago, he was born in an obscure village in one of the tiniest countries in the world. He never traveled that we know of more than 100 miles from his birthplace. He never wrote a book. He only lived 33 years, and only the last three years did he have any public recognition. Yet, people all over the world remember him. They remember his words. They remember his works. They celebrate this day, the day we call Easter. And we even set the, the Western calendar to the date of his birth. A novelist and historian, H.G. Wells, was once asked this. He, he was asked, who was the greatest person in history? And here's what he said. I'm a, a historian, not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is clearly the most dominant figure in all history. That's a strong quote from a non-believer, isn't it? Jesus was different from every other leader of every other religion. His, His lifestyle was different. I mean, during his three years of public ministry, when he had any recognition at all, he was homeless. He often hung out with the lower class, irreligious crowd. It's the kind of people that he was with. And, um, but one thing set him apart more than anything else, and that was he claimed to be God. Other religious leaders like Muhammad or Confucius or Gandhi, you know, they they would say, follow me and I will show you the the way to God. But Jesus said, I am the way. Other religious leaders said, follow me and I will show you truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Other religious leaders said, follow me and and I'll I'll point you the way so that you could know God. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But there's one event that we celebrate today. That sets Jesus apart even more than that because he not only claimed to be God, 
but the resurrection proved that his claim was right. He rose again from the dead. But I have to tell you, even Christ's followers at first denied the resurrection until they saw him. I want to read from a portion of Scripture. It's from Luke chapter 24. And if you, if you have a Bible, follow along. If you want to grab one of the, the, the Bibles on the chair rack in front of you, it's actually page 1056. Or turn on your device or look up at the screens. We're going to start in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, where it says this. <clears throat> and we're picking it up in context where it's Sunday morning. There's a group of women, women heading to the tomb to prepare Christ's body for burial, just something that they would have normally done before he was laid in the tomb, but they didn't have time because Christ was killed Friday afternoon. The Jewish Sabbath started at sundown Friday night. They didn't have enough time before sundown. They couldn't do it during the Sabbath. That's all day Saturday. So they come Sunday morning to do this. And so here we go with verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. And also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But the words appeared to them as nonsense, and they wouldn't believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And here are the mistakes, just like the disciples, that we can make. Whether we believe the resurrection or even if we don't, we're in danger of making three key mistakes regarding the re resurrection. First of all, it's a mistake to deny the miracle of the resurrection. Secondly, it's a mistake to deny the meaning of the resurrection. And thirdly, it's a mistake to, not, to deny the impact that the resurrection can have on you. And so we'll start with that first one. It's a mistake to deny the miracle of the resurrection. And follow me with this. I was thinking through this just this week leading up, and actually this thought came to me as I was driving home on Finnefrock. And, uh, and I'm thinking through, you know, why, why a miracle? I mean, a lot of the miracle of the resurrection, I mean, we get it. People push back on that. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. We live in a scientific age, so people push back. I get it. We expect that. But think logically for a minute. If there is a supernatural God 
And if God created human beings in His image, in addition to everything, humans especially in His image, and He wants a relationship with us, then He would have to reveal Himself. But for a supernatural God to reveal Himself to us, He would have to do that in a supernatural way. He would have to do that with a miracle. Because anything less, we would say, oh, that's natural, that's just a coincidence, right? He would have to reveal Himself with a miracle, supernaturally, or we would just write it off. Well, that's just nature. That's just normal. That, that's just a coincidence that that even happened. So just by logic, there would have to be a miracle for God to reveal himself. But nobody expected Jesus to rise. The Romans, they placed guards around the tomb because they understood that Jesus said he was going to rise again in three days, and they sealed that off, but they weren't expecting it would happen. They just wanted to make sure somebody didn't come in, steal the body, and say that it happened. The women, they didn't expect the resurrection. They're, they're carrying probably 75 pounds of spices to the tomb in order to to treat it in such a way that as it decayed, the odor wouldn't be so bad. It's just what they normally did. They saw him die. The disciples, they didn't didn't expect the resurrection. Even after the women come back and tell him he's risen, this, this sounds nuts, they're thinking. Although Peter then jumps up and runs to the tomb. And we, we, have, we know that actually it wasn't just Peter that ran to the tomb because we have four eyewitness accounts here. We know also that John was with Peter as he ran to the tomb. You know, we have all these details. Details, they're, they're interesting, but they're also important. It's details that help detectives figure out if a testimony is true or not. Does it agree? Do the details all agree? So we all understand how important details can be. By the way, we know this detail. John, in the book of John, tells us that when he and Peter ran to the tomb, and, and the book of John's kind of funny because John actually never names himself in the book. It's like he's this real humble guy. And so he always, when he refers to himself, he refers to himself in the third person, and he'll say, the disciple Jesus loved, or he'll say, that other disciple. And when he says that, he's always referring to himself. But when Peter and John run to the tomb, John actually outruns Peter, and John includes that in his book. The humble guy, oh, by the way, yeah, we ran, and I beat Peter there. You don't even know who I am, but I smoked Peter. I want you to know that. You know, it's kind of a guy thing, I guess. But we, we have all these details, but if really this is either true or it's not true, which means it, it was fabricated by the followers of Jesus to create a false narrative which has become the foundation of our religion, Christianity, today. It's one or the other. And so you have to think through these eyewitness accounts, look at those details, and figure it out. Because if you're going to make up a story about a man who claimed to be God and ended up brutally executed and then raised on the third day, and then you were writing yourself into the story because you're a disciple, you'd probably make your, you'd do like John did in an unimportant way. You'd, you'd, you'd write yourself in in an important way. I mean, 
If you're writing that Jesus told you over and over and over he was going to rise on the third day, and you are making it up, I mean, I would write myself into the story right there at the tomb. I'm waiting, right? And you probably would too. Even if you were a friend of the disciple, you wouldn't make him look so bad, right? I mean, the third day, who's there waiting? Nobody. Not the women, not the disciples. Nobody's there. And we're looking at this going, wow, how, how could they have missed that? You know, I, I would have written it in like, so the third day came. And he had been telling us he was coming again. He was going to rise on the third day. So there we are, the 11. The 11 that's left, Judas has killed himself. The 11 of us, we were there waiting. And then sure enough, at the crack of dawn, there's an earthquake and there's lightning and there's smoke and the stones rolled away and Jesus comes out and we celebrate and high five. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servants. That's not what the gospel says, right? Nobody's there. Nobody's waiting. Nobody's expecting it, even though Jesus kept teaching it over and over and over. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. On the third day, I will rise. And the first to know are these women. Ever notice, it's kind of interesting, that when Luke is compiling... Matthew was an eyewitness. He was a disciple. John, eyewitness. He was a disciple. Mark, close associate of Peter, eyewitness, disciple. But Luke is compiling eyewitness accounts. And he includes the names of three of the women. There's a group of women there, more than three, and actually some of the other gospel writers, because they wrote it at different times, included some of the, other, the names of some of the other women. But Luke just mentions three. You ever, you ever wonder why? He probably knew all the other names. Why just mention three names? Because in ancient times, mentioning somebody's name was like a footnote. Today, we read an article, and it'll have footnotes, right? And so we'll read something, and maybe it's something, a detail or, or some fact, and, and we might question that or want to follow up on that. And then there'll be like a little number at the end of the sentence, and then we go down and look that number up, either at the bottom of the page or the end of the article. Just nod if you're with me here. You know, and so you look that up, and then that's a footnote. These names that Luke wrote in the first century. These are ancient footnotes. He's recording the names of the people who were there who are still living to say this. Oh, and by the way, if you want to know more about what happened that first crack of dawn on Sunday morning, hey, check with Mary Magdalene. Check with Joanna. Check with Mary, the mother of James. Because they were there and they're still living. And they can tell you all about that. It's interesting because a lot of people say, well, hey, the resurrection caught on in the first century because people were so gullible. I mean, people, they were more primitive back then. They were pre-scientific. So somebody says, hey, this guy rose from then. Oh, wow, cool. And, you know, everybody just kind of accepts it. You realize that's completely wrong because the historical record of the four eyewitness accounts that we have are all saying nobody expected it. They all knew what death was. They had no category for this. They didn't see it coming. The women are, they're just going there, kind of figuring out, well, what are we going to do with this stone? I don't know that the group of us can move this stone. And we want to do some stuff that we should have done on Friday, didn't have time. And they get there, 
And they look in, he's gone. Stones rolled away. They look, he's gone. And then there are two angels that appear in dazzling, radiant clothing. And then the angels ask a question. Did you catch that? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Or why are you looking for the living among the dead, they're, they're saying. And actually, there are two kinds of questions, then and now. We can ask a question because we want to get information. Or we can ask a question that's more of a teaching question, it's rhetorical, and we ask the question, but we're not expecting an answer. It's to get somebody to think. It'd be like if you have a teenager living at your home, and then you came, and some of you are laughing already, you know, teenager at their home, wow. You know, you have a teenager at your home, and you, you go in and you ask your teenager, have you finished your homework? That should be a question where you're asking for information, yes or no. Did you get it done or did you not get it done? Normal question. But, but if you go home and you ask your teenager, do you know what's going to happen to you if you keep showing up late for work every day? You're not really asking for their philosophy of employment and, how, and management, right? You're, trying to, you're asking them a question to get them to think, oh, yeah, I, I might get fired, you know, to, so that they can process it out. When the angels ask this question, it's the second kind of question. It's a teaching question. They're saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? And, and when they say that, they're asking that question because there's two categories of people. The dead category and the alive category. And the angels are saying, you've put Jesus in the dead category. And, and, and maybe... That's true of you. Maybe you're here today, and, and although you think Jesus is a great guy and a good example to follow, but you have Jesus in the dead category. You respect him, believe he was good, inspired people, and maybe you're here even to honor the memory of Jesus or, or maybe to honor the person that you're with. Don't put Jesus in the same category as Gandhi and Buddha, and Muhammad. And because the angels say, if you look for Jesus among the dead, you're never going to find him. If you keep looking for Jesus as a great moral teacher and example, you're never going to meet the real Jesus because he is not there. But if you put him in the alive category, that changes everything. Because now Jesus is not simply a teacher. He's a savior. Which brings us to the next mistake. And that's the mistake of denying the meaning of the resurrection. Because we see that happening here too. After their teaching question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Then the angels make a statement. They're not waiting for an answer. They're continuing to teach. They say this, hey, remember how Jesus told you? They're saying, think about this. Think, think, think. Remember how Jesus told you that he must die and he would rise again on the third day? And he's saying this to, to Mary and, and these women. And these are dedicated followers of Jesus. They, they loved Jesus. They, they served Jesus. 
they were there. They're, they're veteran followers of Christ. Most of them have been there with him for three years during his ministry. They, they love him. They, they're there to really to honor him, but they don't understand this. They didn't understand that he must die and rise again. Kind of like people today where, where they'll think, yeah, Jesus, great teacher, lived in the first century, amazing guy, inspired many, you know, taught revolutionary ideas because of those new ideas, got sideways with the powers that be, which was Rome, ended up executed, but hey, he died well, continued to love people. He's a great example for us to follow. But that's not what the angels say. They say, remember all the times that Jesus said, hey, this is why I came. I have to die. The son, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about crucifixion from a story from the Old Testament, talking about him being crucified. E even Thursday, right before the crucifixion, I mean, just a couple of days before Sunday, I mean, he's in the upper room. They're having their last supper. Remember, and he, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you. He kept teaching it over and over and they missed it. And here's the point that you need to understand. Jesus didn't die to be your example. He died to be your substitute. And that brings us to the third mistake. The mistake of denying the impact that the resurrection can have on you. That's the biggest mistake that you can make. Anybody ever make big mistakes? Maybe it's an awkward question to ask in public. You know, anybody make some, yeah, I made some big mistakes. Anybody make any parenting mistakes? Okay, yeah, all right. Well, then I can tell this story. One time, Pam and I were in New York City, and it was back when our kids were little. And so New York, it's a really crowded place, and we're out on the streets and kind of visiting some of the sites at New York City, and I am, I'm like lecturing to our kids. you got to stay together. You guys, you stay together. You stay with mommy and daddy. Nobody gets lost. I mean, there's a lot of people. You can't get separated. You can't wander off even 10 feet right with mom and dad. Got it? And I'm just hammering, 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 and they're, they're nodding. Yeah, yeah, okay, got it, dad. And then we find ourselves down on a subway platform. And so we're there, and we're getting ready to jump on the subway. And, and I, I'm a little freaked out, you know, because there are a lot of people standing here, just crowds, and I'm going, you know, are we all going to fit? And, but, but I perfectly position my family right where this door is going to be. And sure enough, door comes. We give enough room for people to leave. And then we start to step on. And as we start to step on, I mean, people are just flying in from the side, just crowds of people coming in, cutting in front of us and jumping on. And then right before we step on the subway, I balk. I'm thinking, we're not going to all fit. And so I say, no. And then 
Right then, as the door's closing, I realize Brienne has stepped on the subway, and the doors close, and the rest of us are on the platform. And I'm like, no! And I start pounding. There's like windows on the door. And I start pounding on the door. I'm trying to open it. Bam, 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 bam. And I know I have like three seconds, right? And I'm tugging on the door. Bam, bam, bam. And the, and the subway starts to lurch forward and it stops. And the doors fly up. It's like the conductor saw me through a rear mirror or something. And so then we jump on and the doors close and we start moving. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, um, Pam and I are standing there and just relief is just washing over us. We are just, wow, that was close. You know, even as, I'm not a great parent, but I know, come, if you leave with three, come back with three. You know, so, you know, I'm like, wow, that, that was close. And as the subway starts moving, we turn and look, and there's Zach standing on the platform as we leave. And we never saw him again. No. No, actually, we, you know, I signal, stay there. He was perfectly capable of riding to the next stop. And I'm like, no, you stay there, you know. And then we get out. Pam holds the other two. And then I get out the first stop. And I run, sprint through the streets of New York, crowds of people, and down back into the subway and find him going, I could have just ridden to the next stop. Yeah, yeah, you know. I dropped the dad ball that day. The disciples, they dropped the disciple ball, right? I just kept telling them, they're not there. They don't go. Why? I don't know. What I do know, as I think about Peter, Peter had a brutal 48 hours preceding the resurrection. Brutal. Do you remember after that upper room meal that I was talking about. They later went to a garden area to pray, and that's when Judas betrayed Christ, and they came and arrested him. And at first, Peter, he's the first one. He jumps in. He draws a sword out of nowhere, and he starts slicing wounds. One of the people there, Jesus says, no, we're not fighting this out. Stops it. Allows himself to be arrested. And I mean, the disciples, they just... They flee every direction. Boom, they're gone. They take off. But Peter, he's following Christ at a distance. And Christ goes through a series of trials during the night. And so it's early, early, you know, one, two, three in the morning, Friday morning, and, and Peter's there kind of following the action far enough to be safe, not too close, but kind of catching what's happening. And, and as Jesus goes to these different places, and there's one point during the night where Jesus is taken from one place to the chief priest Caiaphas's house. And as they go there, Jesus, uh, Paul, Peter, well, Peter is kind of trailing Paul. And then when Jesus lands in Caiaphas's house, Peter ends up in the courtyard. And, and there's some just groups of soldiers standing there and people that hang out with soldiers in the middle of the night and people, there's some fires and people are staying warm and, and Peter's in the crowd kind of following what, what's going on over there in a the distance. And then remember what happened? Some people started recognizing Peter and saying, whoa, whoa, you're a follower of Jesus. Peter says, no. And that happened again. You know, like a teenager girl is accusing him. He's like, no. 
And then there was a third time where he's accused. And he denies. And, you know, it probably sounded something like this. No! No, I'm, I'm not a follower of him. I have never, ever been a follower of him. Done. Never would I do that. About that time, the rooster crows, right? Early morning. And then Peter, who's in the courtyard, there's a couple of fires and, and soldiers kind of huddled around and other people, you know, stand warm and just kind of waiting for the action. And, and he looks past the courtyard, past the pillars of the portico of Caiaphas's house, and the crowds part in just a way where he's able to see Jesus surrounded by his enemies. And Jesus has been roughed up, beat up a little bit, spit on, and they're mocking him. He's standing all alone and his enemies. And the crowd parts just right. And about the time that rooster crows, Jesus in a distance turns his head and locks eyes with Peter. And Peter remembers that Jesus said that he was going to deny him before the night was over. And he's broken. And he leaves. He can't take it anymore. He leaves weeping. See, at that moment, Peter knew that he was not the man that he thought he was. He started out He'd defend Jesus with his life, but before that same night's over, he's denying Christ three different times. And he not only realizes he's not the man that he thought he was, he's realizing this, this whole, my whole life, it's not turning out the way I thought it would. Not at the beginning and not recently. This, everything is messed up. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you have a little of that Peter in you where, where you're just going, wow, I, you know, I'm here on Easter, I'm hearing about Jesus, a really good person at the very minimum, and it just reminds me of all the mistakes I've made. You know, that I've lied and maybe had an affair or, or betrayed somebody close to me. Or, and that you're thinking, yeah, I'm not the man or the woman that I thought I was. And I never thought that life would kind of bring me to this spot. I just, just didn't think I'd be here in my life. Well, with Peter, what happened that Sunday morning is after he ran to the tomb and he found it empty and actually he was running and yeah, John was with him and yeah, John was faster, beat him there. And then they both looked in, but Peter was the first to go in after the women. And then he, he walks away marveling. Wow, wow, just like, wow. I, I don't think he's still convinced of the resurrection. But then Jesus appears to Peter and the rest of the disciples, eventually Thomas last. And after Peter saw Jesus, his life was radically changed. The sadness, the guilt, the shame, the fear 
that he was living it, gone. And he became radically joyful, bold, yet humble. He, he told everybody. He went out. He was a changed man forever. I mean, his life turned upside down in that moment. Everything was different for him. He lives a fearless, joyful, confident life from that moment on. And he begins to live the life that he was meant to live. He begins living like God had designed him to live the whole time. And the question is, how about you? Are you living that life of confidence and joy and fearlessness? Because your faith is in the risen Christ. Or are you still living in kind of that doubt, shame, guilt? You see, Jesus said he had to come and he had to die. And there's a reason for that. And it's all spelled out in Scripture. Basically, God created us and humans in his image to have a relationship. But he didn't force himself on us. And so to make that work, he, he allowed us to have our own decision-making, our own free will. And, and because we can make our own decisions, every single one of us did Peter. I mean, every single one of us did that. We rebelled against God. We sinned against him. We did wrong in God's eyes. We all messed up. We sinned against God. And if there is a God... and we would like to think that God not only would be perfect and holy and all that, but that He would also be just, that He would bring justice. Because we all want justice. And actually, God is perfectly just. And we, although we don't experience perfect justice now, perfect justice is on its way. It's coming. But even though we want justice, that's actually bad news for us. Because we've sinned against him and we're guilty. And justice demands that we be punished. There cannot be justice without punishment. And justice demands that all of us be punished. Every human being. All of us. Because we've all sinned. And then that punishment is way more severe than we might think because of who we're sinning against. Our creator, perfectly holy God, the punishment for our sin is that we would be separated from God forever. And there's no second chances. Once we die, that's it. The Bible is clear about that. Once you die, no second chances. We only have this life to turn to Him. And so that's you and me. We've sinned against God. We deserve separation from him forever. It's the right thing. But know this. God loves you more than you ever dreamed. And because God loves you that much, he sent his one and only son, God in flesh, to come. Live a perfect life without sin, therefore being the only one qualified to do something about somebody else's sin. And he allowed himself to be executed, 
tortured and killed by His own creation as a way of paying for our sin so justice can happen, but yet we could be forgiven. The price was paid. Jesus paid our penalty so that we could be forgiven. And the way we get that is through faith. And, and let me explain what faith is because we mess that up sometimes the way we use the word today. Faith in Jesus means that you believe who he is, that he's the son of God, God in flesh, and that you trust in what he did on the cross, that when he died on the cross, that he was actually paying for your sins and my sins. And so when you have faith, it's believing who Jesus is and what he did, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, because we can't pay for our own without being separated from God forever. And so the question is, have you ever come to God in that way? You see, Jesus Christ is, and Christianity is unlike every other religion. Every other religion is, what do you have to do? How do you work yourself up to God's favor? And then you keep doing life as hard as you can, and then you hope and you wonder, have I done enough to be okay with God? Christianity is completely different than that. Christianity is saying, there's nothing you can do to be okay with God. You cannot perform that. You cannot live a good enough life to erase your sins. You're supposed to live a good life. You get no extra credit for that. You can't do anything, but Christ has done it for you, and it's a gift that He's giving to you if you'll accept it in faith and the biggest question of your life is, have you done that? Have you become a believer through faith alone? Not faith and I'm a pretty good guy and, hey, I came to church on Easter. That counts. No, faith and nothing. What Jesus did for you, he earned it for you. You can do nothing to earn God's favor. What Christ did, have you come to that spot? And the biggest mistake you can ever make in your life would be to not accept that gift through faith. That's so important that I want to give you an opportunity to express that to God. And so right now, I'd like everyone to bow your heads, and, and as you're doing that, here's what, what I'm going to do, and I want to protect your privacy, and I don't want to embarrass you, and I won't in any way. But how you really become a Christian, it's not church or baptism or all this stuff. I mean, that's what Christians do, but that's not how you become a Christian. How you become a Christian is simply by placing your faith in Jesus, recognizing that you're a sinner that deserves separation from Him forever, but you're placing your trust that Christ paid for your sins. And, and I want to walk you through that. I just want to... What saves you is faith. That We express that in, in a prayer. A lot of times we call that a sinner's prayer that probably most of us in the room have done at one point in our life or not. So I want to help you express your newfound faith if today's the day you're putting your faith in Christ. And that's just through prayer. And God knows your every thought, and you don't have to say it out loud because God knows you. He, he knows what you're praying, even if you don't verbalize it vocally. And so you just make this prayer your sincere prayer. You can put it in your own words. 
but I want to walk you through that right now. So if you don't know where you stand with God and you want to follow him, put your faith in Jesus, and you can express that in this way to God silently right now, just something like this in your own words. Father in heaven, I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I've sinned against you. And Lord, that I I deserve punishment for that. We all do. But God, I also have learned that you love me more than I could have ever dreamed. And you've provided a way for me uh, to be forgiven. And it's not by my own effort. It's through what Jesus has already accomplished for me on the cross. And so God, right now, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry for my sin, and I'm putting my faith in in Jesus and only Jesus for my salvation. And God, just to show my sincerity, I want you to come into my life and help me to follow you, help me to live your way as best I can. Not not that that would save me, it, it won't, but just in appreciation for you loving me the way you love me. Thank you, Lord. Amen.